Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Economics, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones, and my guests today are Sven Carlson and Jonas Leon-Hervid, authors of the Spotify play, how CEO and founder Daniel Ake beat Apple, Google, and Amazon in the race for audio dominance. The book was published in English in February 2021 by Diversion Books, and is currently being adapted by director Per Olaf Sørensen as a Netflix miniseries. Fifteen years ago in Stockholm, Daniel Ake and Martin Lawrenson had an idea. The music industry was desperately trying to hold back the tide of piracy via file sharing, but this was proving as hopeless as the war on drugs. Why not, they thought, use the new torrenting technologies to make piracy legit and themselves rich? In 2006, they founded the company with a handful of engineers, no licenses and no revenue. Even the company name was an accident after Lawrenson misheard Ake's suggested name, and bought the Spotify.com domain license. Today, Spotify is the world's most popular audio streaming subscription service with 345 million users and with a market capitalization of $60 billion. Business bookshelves are full of rags-to-riches biographies of Amazon, Twitter, Airbnb, Uber, and Netflix, but until now there's been nothing in English on Europe's one tech giant. Finally, Swedish journalist Van Carlsen and Jonas Leijenhervid have filled the gap with a book based on interviews with more than 80 sources and a mountain of public and private documents. Sven is a technology reporter at Swedish Radio who went to school in Moscow and New York. Jonas was raised in Stockholm and Arizona, is a veteran business reporter who is now at the digital subsidiary of Dargan Industry. Sven and Jonas, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thank you so much. Um, As I may have hinted in the intro there, I've been waiting for this book to come for a long time. Um, I read Brad Stone's Everything Store, Nick Hilton's Hatching Twitter, and Lee Gallagher's Airbnb story, but there was no equivalent out there on Spotify, so thank you. Um, After following the company for so long, what made you decide to write the original Swedish book, and why write together? I mean, I think the um, the Spotify story sort of got got something of a uh, there was a an end to the book uh, that we could envision once they were listed on the stock exchange. Because mm-hmm. really, I mean, there, there were existential questions that uh, surrounded the company for for a long time. You know, would this uh, business model work? Would the artist community accept? what they were doing. Um, a lot of those things were not uh, given, you know, if you just uh, look back a few years. And so by the time that they reached um, the stock exchange, it felt like here's, you know, this is, we could now do, we could try and sort of chronicle the, what, what Daniel Ek would call the, the sort of first inning of the company's history. Um, and, and writing together, well, I, I don't know, Jonas, how did, how did that happen? <laughs> Uh, we were colleagues at the Doggins industry and writing about tech companies, and this was the biggest tech story of them all. And uh, mm-hmm. I'd been thinking for years about writing a book about Spotify, but it was a very, very secret company. And uh, it was hard to sort of get good sources uh, that, that had 
uh, seen it all from the inside. But once uh, the, the company was going to be listed on Wall Street, um, we realized that the, a new era of transparency uh, sort of was on the horizon for Spotify and that probably uh, it would be easier to get people to talk about the early days also as a result of that. And, and we had a few sources between the two of us and uh, we talked about it a little bit. And Sven actually ha ha had his own ideas and had, a, had booked a meeting with one of the big publishing houses in Stockholm. Uh, so he wasn't sure that he wanted to write this book together with me. But then I also had a, a good publishing source. And eventually we pitched it together. And, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, they said yes uh, right away. Uh, we didn't have much to start out with. But um, we knew that there's a great story there. And, and uh, uh, if we, uh, you know, between the two of us, we had enough sources to get to get to get started, and um, mm -hmm. it's been a really interesting adventure to to try to uh, find our way into the story. Because because uh, Spotify, it's an unofficial corporate biography, so Spotify has declined interviews uh, specifically for the book. We've we've interviewed Daniel and Martin as journalists several times throughout the years uh, and uh, continue to cover the company as journalists. But for this book, they, they have not participated in any way, uh, mm. the, you know, the, the neither the founders nor the company. So we've have to, had to rely on a lot of off-record sources and, and um, as you mentioned, over 80, 80, 80 sources to in total. Mm. And how, how did you write it? Do you take a chapter each or how did you do it? Actually, I, I, I focused on the early early years and Sven on the later years, uh, so that was one way of dividing it up. But then we've we've gone into each other's parts, and so we've done it all together in the end, uh, and we've read out loud to each other a lot. And uh, so there isn't a sentence in this book that we haven't both sort of tinkered with. I, I'd say. Yeah, I didn't notice any change in style. I don't uh, between any of the chapters. So. Um... That seems to uh, verify that. A lot of sitting out at the at, at Sven's dad's summer house in the archipelago <laughs> of Stockholm and reading the book aloud to each other and just going crazy over over <laughs> over all the changes and arguing and so on uh, uh, with each other about how to how to put this together. But um, uh, so a, a lot of uh, passionate discussions, never any breakups. Uh, it's it's it made the book better that we've that we've been each other's editors, kind of. And the, I mean, the book, the original book was published in uh, 2019 in Sweden. And um, by the time we were um, translating the English uh, version, we also uh, had the opportunity to add a lot of research and reporting that really sort of clarified a few important things and, and gave us some more sort of character depth, I think, uh, in terms of Daniel and in terms of a few other key people. So... I'm quite happy, and I think Jonas is too, with with this English language version because it feels like it's uh, sort of uh, up to date and and just a little more fleshed out. Um, so so we're we're glad that it's finally out. Did you find that um, people, some of the people who hadn't spoken to you for the Swedish ed edition, approached you because they wanted to put the record straight or they wanted to say something something to get into the English edition? Well, kind of the other way around, but we. Uh, when we went knocking uh, on some of the same doors that had been closed to us uh, in the first round, we noticed that some of them opened up because people realized, oh, it's gonna it's gonna come out in in English in this in the states, and mm -hmm. maybe uh, the, the response to the first version of the book was uh, positive enough that they that they dared uh, talk. So yeah, some 
some people uh, decided to contribute uh, that, that said no to us uh, in the first round. And, and a lot of people that have seen the story from the inside feel a, a, a great degree of personal loyalty to, to Daniel and to the company. Um, uh, and so you can understand that they, that they were sort of hesitant uh, when we came knocking and they didn't know who we were. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, it, it helped uh, that the book had gained some traction by the time we uh, translated and updated it for for the uh, the English version. And, and tell me about the Netflix uh, thing. How when did that? When when did you first hear about that? Early on, uh, and it was uh, the production company Yellowbird that was interested in buying the film and television rights, uh, and and then they finally did and then uh, more months passed and then they sold it to Netflix and uh, uh, so the situation with that is that we're not part of uh, that production at all uh, mm. and we're not consulting we're not part of it at all and I think um, that's probably a good thing uh, f uh, because we're still as journalists covering uh, the company and and so uh, mm. it's just as well to keep these uh, things separate you know this this uh, we we don't want to sort of answer t uh, for what Netflix and, and Yellowbird are going to do with this but I mean it's a it's a drama it's a dramatization so it would be based on a true story I'm guessing uh, and um, it's two separate worlds really so so mm. um, uh, very separate projects uh, we're not a part of it I mean it's the ideal thing to 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 be trying to film at a time of uh, at the time of pandemic because there's never going to be more than a handful of people in the room at any any time. Uh, yeah, I, they, I don't know how far they've got with it. I yeah, we don't we 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 can't really answer to that. But um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, it, it will be um, interesting to see what they what what how they create drama uh, mm. in this in this kind of a story. Uh, Maybe it will be like a Margin Call or one of those films, you know, mm. that, that have a, a certain intensity to them, despite be taking place in inside offices to a great extent. Uh, mm. I'm really uh, excited to see uh, what what the end result is of this. Yeah, well, I, I mean, coming to the book, it's um, it was really funny reading it to realize how long ago 2006 seemed. Uh, I mean, even the and actually, even the really crucial moments of the development of the company in 2012, 2013, because the technology has moved so quickly over that time. I mean, I'd actually forgotten that Spotify was a desktop uh, product originally and had to move very quickly into the mobile app for survival. W w was it a similar experience for you in, in, in the writing? Yeah, I think that's a, a challenge uh, covering technology generally, that it moves uh, fairly quickly and you, you're, as a consumer at least, you're not, you're, you're sort of, intuitive and you're you're just using it and you sort of quickly forget uh the rapid advances um and i think that we had to sort of reimagine what what those times were like when we were mm. when we were writing about those years that you mentioned i mean that was it was very much a desktop product uh spotify did not go really mobile first until i mean quite late uh, as you mentioned you know 2013 14 15 even um, and those were, yes, very different times. I mean, the, the main uh, competitor were MP3 players. I mean, chiefly huh. the iPod. And, uh, you know, we, we, a lot of us will remember those, but that's also quite a different way of consuming music uh, and, and an entirely different uh, business model that, uh, you know, really Spotify upended. 
Yeah, and we divided it up, me taking the early years and Sven taking the later, because I, I, I was a young business reporter uh, in, in, you know, in, in 99, uh, when, when the story kind of starts with Martin Lawrenson, uh, who was one of the two founders, building his fortune with a company called Trade Doubler. We trace a little bit of that, too. So uh, I'm 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 the older one of us who sort of remembers. <laughs> you were actually you were actually a part of the the sort of uh, booming Stockholm tech scene for a brief while, right? Uh, yeah, well, I, I uh, in '98 I worked for a web design company, so I, I saw that world from the inside a little bit uh, in the first dot com bubble, uh, which is sort of when when Daniel was still in high school and and Martin was was uh, building his first fortune, which he later invested in, in Spotify. Uh, so, yeah, I, I kind of have a feel for that time and the excitement of that time uh, and also where the technology was, which was someplace mm. completely different. It was all sort of very new and destined to sort of fall on its face. Uh, a lot of the first iterations of these great ideas, uh, you know, Spotify started in 2006. That's kind of late in the game. There, there were a lot yeah. of uh, companies that had tried this out before so they they were lucky to come in not too early just i think they came in at the right time like right before the smartphone revolution uh which is really uh, what's what's sort of carried them into to uh to all our lives and and made them be, become a company that can be uh you know that ha have users in the hundreds of millions yeah, I, I spent a fair amount of time in Stockholm in the in the early noughties myself for, for, for my job, and I remember it as this very booming sort of uh, hip tech hub place. Mm. But I, again, I'd forgotten the I'd forgotten that some of these companies were Swedish, like Skype and uh, you know Kazar, and even part of SoundCloud. Yeah, um, and also, but also the point you make, it was the spiritual home of European piracy. Yeah. <laughs> Could you could you outline how how that happened? How it was that Sweden became this this legit but also uh, non legit hub? I mean, I think uh, there's a number of factors there. Um, obviously, um, internet usage was kind of early in Sweden. Uh, our, our broadband uh, networks were sort of rapidly built out in the 1990s, and so we had speeds that were really sort of, I mean, uh, uh, not very common at all in a country like the United States, for instance, or even in other countries in, in Europe. And then there were a number of other factors. I mean, the, the government had a sort of subsidized uh, home computer program where where anyone uh, employed uh, either in the public sector or maybe even within the private sector too could could um, get a pretty large subsidy for for getting a home computer. And so I remember getting, I actually, while Jonas sort of... Um, became uh, an adult around those types of years, around the sort of turn of the millennium. I am three years uh, younger than, than Daniel Ek, but we have a kind of similar background in that we're both from Stockholm. And I also sort of used Napster when that was in its, its heyday. Um, and, and around that time, um, in terms of uh, file sharing, uh, it, there was a lot of um, buzz around that in Sweden. And, and there was a sort of sense that... Um, I mean, Napster, of course, was was a U.S. service, but it but it really spread rapidly, uh, and the Pirate Bay, obviously, and and Kazaa before that uh, were two uh, file sharing uh, services that that originated from from Sweden, and and there was a sense that the, in the music industry, at least, that that Scandinavia was was sort of a lost uh, cause, or or perhaps going to be at least uh, piracy was rampant, and that's of course later an important part. Uh, in why Spotify got to try out 
its business, its service in the Nordic region, because essentially, I mean, I think the labels uh, felt that 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 was sort of, you know, any any shot, they they were willing to take any shot to sort of save the industry there because uh, things were looking so down. I mean, it was basically uh, the Nordics, particularly Sweden and China, that that sort of made up these like dark red spots on the map, the sort of alarmist maps of piracy that the, the sort of industry associations would push out at the time. So that's uh, it's it's actually you know piracy was quite common um, and it had a lot of roots here, um, but it was also a reason that I think Daniel Ek saw the the uh, the true potential of a of a strong, widely used music service, um, and, and it was also a reason that they could even start to to begin to try to convert users into something else. Yeah, and also iTunes launched rather late. Uh, the iTunes Music Store launched rather late in Sweden, so piracy had already caught on, and and, and uh, iTunes never really caught on in Sweden. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, Niklas Sendström, who founded Skype, also founded Kazaa, which was a file sharing and uh, the, the biggest one in two thousand three. And then you had the Pirate Bay coming out of Sweden, which sort of uh, was was big when Daniel was was uh, starting Spotify. So there was a lot of inspiration in Sweden. Also, they uh, uh, MicroTorrent was started by uh, Ludwig Strigius, who became a Spotify employee. Uh, so he, they had a the piracy star, uh, you know, in in, in the um, uh, first year uh, as part of the, the the early crew there at Spotify. So, and they used peer to peer technology. So I mean. The, they were so much a part of that and grew out of that. They just, they saw this is what's piracy is what's going to rule the world. We just want to make a legal version of it. And, and the, the, the one question and answer with Daniel Ek that we do have in this book is I went to this open house that they had at Spotify and they invited a bunch of journalists and I asked Daniel, what's the secret to your success? And he said, I'll give you two reasons. And one reason was uh, that they were a free service or a freemium service, and they've always been free, not just for three months, but forever. You can use Spotify for free your whole life if you want to. It's restricted in some ways, but the, the number of songs are the same uh, in the free version. Um, and the second reason was that we started in Sweden and grew country by country, and by that he meant that there was a tolerance from the music industry that uh, Sweden could be the first little laboratory to see how far this went, and then they could yeah. uh, build on that. And so and they launched in England fairly early, but uh, of course, launching in the States became the big sort of uh, challenge, uh, the sort of life or death challenge uh, in, the, in the first years of Spotify. And, and um, a lot of the, the drama in the book, of course, uh, uh, revolves around that. Yeah, I think, yeah. and just that free tier remained and and to this day, to, to an extent, remains uh, quite controversial, both among artists, but also uh, with the labels, uh, because, I mean, as, as critics would put it, that's, that subsidizes Spotify's growth at the expense of their competitors and gives music away for free. But that's, you know, that, that's been a point of contention since the very start. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about the, the fact, you know, the, the, the music companies accepted it in, in part because it was rolled out country by country but as you as you set out in the book the the first couple of years he was really fixated on the idea of, of getting global music rights and it was only after this one meeting in new york where he basically abandoned the idea and and so in in some ways he was he was helped in the long term by what he was not able to do yeah, I think uh, it, it might be to his credit that he had a vision of a completely free service with no premium uh, tier at all, 
uh, and global. And that was where he, that was his starting point. And he held the vision of a free service with, uh, all, you know, all along. And, and I think that's what has made Spotify successful. And then he, he had a compromise. Uh, I, I, and it might have been that meeting in New York. It's hard to know. People have, have a hard time remembering. But I think that um, some of his colleagues kind of convinced him that this is, you have to have a premium version also. Otherwise, you're never going to get the, the music uh, licenses that you need to launch the service. And, and also, we need to do it country by country because they're never going to give us a, a, an international license from day one. And so he accepted that and moved along with those challenges. And, and looking back, uh, the premium subscription is, is, is why Spotify uh, has a business model that, that looks like it can be profitable at some point. Uh, it's essential. It's an essential part. Uh, and that's why Daniel likes to talk about freemium business models instead of a free business model, which is his first idea. And, um, and the fact that they launched in country by country has, has, has uh, allowed them to sort of grow and, and, and prove to the industry that they can uh, be profitable and that they can uh, you know, grow in a responsible way. They've been able to point to Sweden as an example of uh, you know, where, where, they're, where they're combating uh, piracy and, and helping the record industry grow in a, in a legal way and so on. So um, yeah, if you, if you just keep at it and have a basic vision, uh, then uh, the company can, can be worth the problems that it's solving, uh, which, is, which is the sort of the motto of, of uh, Martin Lawrence on the, the other, co Daniel's co-founder. Uh, that's what he likes to say, that the co a company is worth the number of problems that it solves. And Spotify had a lot of big problems to solve. And uh, when it solved them, it became a big, huge company as a result. Mm. The, two, two very interesting characters in the book, um, I mean, it's full of it's full, it's some larger than life characters, but Rob Wells and uh, Per Sundin from from Universal, they they seem to have been the two who latched onto this argument very early that that you couldn't play whack a mole forever, and it was better to have Spotify than to than, than you know to leave the field open to, to to the pirates. Do do you think those two were quite decisive in the? in the success so far of Spotify? I think there were a lot of early champions, uh, of course, and uh, there are some who are sort of more outspoken than others. But yes, I mean, that was crucial to get the support of, not necessarily of the US side of Universal at this time, but of the uh, sort of international arm of Universal, which is headquartered in London. Um, Persson Dean, of course, was the uh, Nordic uh, CEO for Universal. Uh, and then there was uh, Rob Wells, who was working on the digital side. I think he was VP, something along those lines in London at the time. And yes, I mean, that's an early sort of crucial meeting where Daniel got an ally on the label side who chose to see the enormous potential that Daniel also saw, who, who sort of, I mean, as, as we understand it, uh, believed in this from, from the get-go and, and became a really important uh, proponent uh, for Spotify on the on the industry side, but specifically uh, with Universal, which is you know biggest record label. So that was yes, I, I think so. Both those two were important early proponents, but of course, in retrospect, even more so. Right now that Spotify was the right choice, was the right side of history to be on, uh, then then uh, you know of of course uh, you know. So it's hard to know exactly uh, who, 
who was the most important voice in the room at any any one time. But these these are figures that have uh, appeared on our our radar, uh, and uh, mm. uh, I would hesitate to point out uh, any any one or uh, any handful of people uh, as 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 sort of uh, uh, holding the keys. The, neither one of those two characters uh, uh, made were able to to make the actual uh, most important decisions. So. Uh, you know, Daniel had to convince their bosses uh, in order to be able to launch in the United States, and uh, yeah. and how they were convinced. I think it's a more complicated story. We get into it, and I think we found a lot of sort of keys. But uh, I think uh, a, a lot of the things that happened will will sort of never be known. <laughs> it's it's a it's a it's two years really of of trying to uh, unlock the unlock the door to the U.S. and and get a hold mm-hmm. of music licenses for all the uh, four major record labels at the time. Um, eventually it became three uh, when, when EMI was bought, but when they were heading into the U S it was four uh, labels that they, they had to, they had to get, they had to get them all to sign on to, to the idea. Yeah. And, and I hadn't realized till I read the book, how, you know, how, how the record label saw Apple as this sort of, um, <laughs> protector stroke gatekeeper that they, they felt that uh, it was safer to stick with the company that was selling their songs at a dollar a piece and guaranteeing 70% revenue going to the, going back to them. So to, to break through that did seem extremely difficult. Yeah, of course. And I mean, there was also a problem, um, a potential problem at least uh, in, in, sort of reliance on Apple at this point. At, at one point, I think in the US, they had around an 80% market share um, for digital distribution of, of music. And of course, you know, that that meant that Apple was a very important source of revenue for the industry, but it was also, you know, one of one of the one of the few, um, making them quite dependent on this model that was, I mean, at times felt like a sort of back of the envelope sketch, um, a dollar a song kind of thing which also broke up the album which was of course a, a major shift in terms of how we consume music um so, so i mean apple was a dominant force for spotify but there was also some sense in which you know the the labels and we we see that today i think benefit from a variety of uh, uh platforms to to use as a distribution for their music whether that be various streaming services or or social media or sync or whatever types of way they want to sell their music. I mean, I think that's that sort of puts them in more of a position of, of strength. Um, and and so while labels were uh, at times, especially I would say Warner and Universal, were quite wary of not uh, sort of upsetting Steve Jobs or Apple too much. Um, th- there's also they had a lot to gain from from being able to to negotiate with various parties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course. I mean, now where are we? Uh, Fourteen plus years on, and uh, as, as the results this week showed that you know Spotify still hasn't made a profit, and the the assumption among analysts seems to be that it is largely down to the structure of the uh, the deals that it, ha- it, it has had to do with the music, uh, we, you know, with the recording companies. What what's very striking reading the book is really from you, you, you get a sense that from sort of 2012, 2013 onwards, uh, Ake is looking for any ways to, over the medium to long term, to break away from this stranglehold. 
Um, but each time that you know, the, the, uh, baby steps are taken, he has to he has to go back because they are so they are so dominant in this in this relationship. Do you, do you get any sense that that is starting to change? It seems like podcasting is is like his new uh, way yeah. out of that problem, that dilemma. Because it's because. For a while, like a few years ago, it looked like Spotify might uh, become kind of a self-publishing platform for musicians and that uh, that would threaten the record labels. But uh, I think that they the record labels have objected to, to some of this two-sided marketplace uh, business that Spotify has been uh, planning. And, and uh, so they haven't really been able to pursue that full on. And I think um, uh, Spotify now looks at music as this can be marginally profitable, but on top of that, we're going to add other types of audio and um, we're going to try to do what Netflix does. We're going to try to own our own content. So we'll mm. be a Netflix for podcasting with exclusive uh, podcasts mixed in with uh, lots of uh, podcasts that are widely available and generally available. And that will uh, make people use our platform for all things audio and uh, and we can find ways to make money on our uh, on the content that we ourselves own. You know, they've invested a billion dollars in, in buying uh, various podcasting companies and um, uh, the content. Uh, and they have they have four of their own uh, po uh, podcasting studios uh, making their own content. So so owning owning the content is, I think, what's excited the market uh, and, yeah. and made the. Uh, the the stock go up. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but I I, I think that that the music might just become sort of the backbone of a business that finds other uh, pathways to profitability. At this mm -hmm. point, it looks like that that's the kind of the plan. And actually, I was I was surprised because you, I think very early on in the book, you 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 describe how when they were building the original platform, they saw it as an agnostic streaming platform. So the idea always was that this this you know this was not something that was going to be um, only for music right from the start. Yes, and that's kind of the point uh, about speaking about this in hindsight, as Jonas was was saying earlier in terms of who were the key people involved. I mean, looking back now, there's uh, a lot of people willing to to take credit, um, and there's a lot of people you know the the sort of opponents of Spotify over the years. Um, are perhaps, you know, a little less forthcoming when we talk to them. Um, but of course, this was a negotiation all along. So they helped shape what this service would be, um, too, of course. And, and I'm sorry, what was your question? Well, I think that uh, uh, Tim was talking about the fact that they, they, were, they were thinking about television and film uh, from yeah, the very right, early, early on. years. And, and they did, of course, venture into this unsuccessful uh, television uh, venture that was sort of quieted down and buried, uh, you know, way beneath the floorboards, and that we have a chapter about in our book uh, called Spotify TV. Uh, they they built something comparable to Apple TV, also comparable to cable television, uh, and the technology was great, but they weren't able to um, uh, they weren't able to hammer out the license agreements in any way that looked reasonable, and the, and it just it looked like it was going to have to become so expensive that they had to sort of bury the whole idea, and um, and so it's a very crowded, very crowded marketplace. Exactly, too, and now it? that when when Daniel, after our book has been published, gets questions on this, then he says, well, at least we didn't spend too much on that because 
looking back, having spent, I don't know, uh, 10, 15 million dollars or something like that on this, uh, they, it doesn't look like it's that much money, you know, if you compare it to what Spotify is worth today. But when they were, when they were venturing into this in 2012, 13, 14, 15, uh, they, you know, and they had more than 70 people working on this project and stuff. It was a pretty big, uh, risk, you know, and they, and it was a kind of a, a, a major failure, but to Daniel's credit, he pulled the plug, uh, before it was too late. Uh, so probably at the right time. And, and I think they learned from that, that, um, uh, they, they want to focus on audio and that there's something about listening, uh, that ties it all together in the app. Uh, people don't want to switch from, you know, listening to something when they're out jogging or running uh, uh, or walking with a baby carriage to like to like watching the screen and you know with it. so none of this none of the formats that they tried out worked very well. So I think that they've done they've done the right thing now in understanding that they're gonna they want they're they're trying to be king of audio and that's what this whole experience has sort of led them to conclude. This is this is our uh, this is our home court. Yeah, in some ways, the, the the pandemic should have done them some favors. You know, the, the, the p- people are desperate to get out and exercise, but at the same time, they're not allowed to mix with people. So they, somebody else needs to entertain their ears. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, absolutely that this is uh, something that, that you know you can bring you in your solitary everyday activities. Spotify can be can be with you in a way that uh, Netflix can't, that uh, really hardly anything else can, you know, I'm, you, you can, you can do laundry and listen to stuff in your Spotify app. And, and so it's uh, really, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a killer app if you have like the best audio content, you know, so we'll see if going forward if they, if they add audiobooks or, or what the next step will be. Uh, but I think for the coming years, uh, the podcasting play is going to is going to be uh, where you see a lot of sort of leaps and strides. Yeah, but as you were mentioning, I mean, it's video used to be and still is a very crowded marketplace, and and audio is too. I mean, name a large tech company that isn't focusing on podcasts these days, even developing original content. And so there's there's uh, a lot of competition. Uh, Spotify's finances are, as you mentioned, I mean, they have turned a profit uh in terms of over over a quarter i mean over a, a handful um fewer than 10 but but still quite a few quarters uh, since they went public um but but their margins are are slim and and right now it looks as though podcasting will be uh the way in which they try to to change that and you know it's we're, we're quite early um in, in terms of the size of the podcasting market but also in terms of spotify's push into it. So, so we'll see. I think one key component that they'll have to work on is developing more of an, an ad revenue stream. And that's, um, you know, that, that changes sort of how the business operates. It changes how they process data, which can be contentious with users. Uh, Spotify has had run into trouble when they've updated their data privacy policies in the past because there's been sort of an, uh, a bit of outrage among users on the internet. And so, you know, we'll, we'll see where this takes Spotify, but they do have to do something about uh, their returns because, you know, the, eventually um, their market cap, which has grown, you know, significantly uh, over the course of the pandemic, will have to be sort of defended in terms of, of profits and not just a, a multiple mm-hmm. on sales. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I think you point, I think you point out in the book how long 
Netflix and Amazon in particular went without, you know, without making a profit, simply grabbing market share. It is something that is quite, um, you know, a feature of this of this market segment. Yes, this is true, and that it's it's that it's not necessarily a uh, to your disadvantage. But but uh, there's only there's only so many Jeff Bezoses in the world, I suppose. Yes. Um, one thing you write about quite a bit is is the culture of the company and how how it changed. Uh, and uh, I think you know s- some of the original engineers quit when they felt it it was turning in, in inverted commas too American. And you also very interesting cultural difference between one of the engineers who is a social democrat from northern Sweden and, and another who's a sort of liberal from Stockholm. It is is that something that's continued, you know, since the book is written, since the book is finished? I think that was sort of emblematic of the early days, um, especially because there was this ideological sort of uh, uh, current in Sweden where sort of file sharing was becoming the norm, essentially. And a, and a lot of people were n- not just doing it because they wanted to get, uh, uh, you know, a music library for free. They also felt that ideologically somehow this was how the Internet was supposed to work. And that was the I mean, the, the one of the key aspects in which Spotify has really succeeded is the way they've been able to transform as a company. So. They started out as very technologically focused. They wanted the, the best uh, tech. They wanted the best platform out there to get a product that was just, you know, world class. And then they began to commercialize the service. And that's where a lot of this friction occurred, which, which you're referring to uh, in the book. And then they've continued to, to transform the company into, I mean, at one point it was video. They've pivoted so many times over the years. And, and we don't necessarily see that because they're quite secretive about what they do. But they've really been searching for uh, the sort of right recipe for a long time. And, and podcasting is just the latest attempt. And it's, you know, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. And I mean, if you look back uh, to like the years after they entered the U.S. market in 2011, you know, when they were competing with Beats Music and Pandora, uh, that, you know, the algorithmic playlist that, uh, that uh, Discover Weekly became on Spotify Radio, uh, that was like the big technical shift from the from the sort of European computer nerd lean forward and and create your own playlists to sort of the more uh, American style of just press play and and uh, select one song and it just keeps on uh, it understands the computer understands what you want to hear and it works more like turning on the radio in your car or something like that uh, so I, Spotify uh, sort of was inspired by some of the American companies that were ahead of them. And they sort of uh, surpassed them uh, with Discover Weekly. That was a big hit. And uh, algorithmic playlists that sort of are based on what people like and listen to. So they're based on like uh, sort of what human, what actual humans are listening to, what all their, what all their uh, consumers are listening to. Uh, but then the uh, algorithms sort of, sort of combine all this data into like playlists that you fall in love with right away, kind of, in the best of yeah. cases. <laughs> Yeah, there's you got you got that alarming quote from Daniel Lake where he he says something like you know he, he wants people listening to Spotify from the minute they wake up to the minute they go to sleep so you'll essentially have a soundtrack to your life yeah. with a, with AI knowing exactly how you feel at any given time. That was that was around the time when when they had to implement that they had to change their privacy policy and that's when that sort of <laughs> online uh, uh, outrage um, 
happened. And so they, they sort of have readjusted, I think, their messaging a bit. Um, you know, that, that was about five years ago. And I think the privacy discussion is, is elsewhere today than it was then. But we do see now that, you know, uh, patents that they file for include, you know, quite sophisticated sort of audio based personalization of sort of ads and, and profiling users uh, in terms of not just what they listen to, but perhaps even, you know, more data than that that they can try to obtain through their platform. So, so you know, there's, there, is that, um, th- there is that sort of tantalizing prospect of, of uh, 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 basically making more money uh, in, in more sort of sophisticated ways, but, but it's, it's sort of a, a tricky path to go down as, as we've seen for companies like Facebook and, and Google. Yeah. At the end of the book, or very, very close to the end, you have this quote from an unnamed source, um, quote, Daniel and Martin have always wanted to negotiate with companies like Microsoft, Google, and Tencent to understand the strategic value of the company. I don't think they ever had the intention of selling, end quote. That's hindsight, agree? if anything. <laughs> yeah, That's partially hindsight, but I, I think uh, it rings true to a great extent. Uh, Daniel loves to get up on stages and talk to uh, startup founders and talk to Euro- a European audience and, and tell them, don't sell your company to the Americans, don't sell your company to the Chinese, keep on building. We can also become, build world-class tech companies here in Europe. Uh, and uh, I think that's the way he's felt about Spotify for the most part, but he has been no stranger to negotiating uh, the sale of his company. And then the people that are close to him will say, oh, well, yeah, he did. But he, he just, you know, he mainly was curious to see what, what is it worth? What would it, how would it fit into Google? Uh, some people say, oh, you know, if, if they'd let him be, if they'd let him merge Spotify uh, with YouTube, and, and he could be the head of that, then he would have said yes. You know, um, some people say if he'd you know, been offered enough money, he would have said yes. It's hard for us to know. I mean, it's hard for even him to know, I think, uh, because you sort of rewrite your own story, uh, mm-hmm. even in your own mind. But um, uh, I mean, there is there is one moment which you'd sort of have to hand it to him uh, for. Uh, this is in 2009 when Spotify is, is you know, a European service essentially with headquarters in London and Kara Swisher, um, the, um, you know, podcaster tech journalist, um, travels there to interview Daniel for, uh, the site she then worked for, which was all things D I believe under the wall street journal. And so it's a video interview. It's sort of, you know, young Daniel, um, you know, looking, uh, boyish, uh, in, in this sort of, uh, bleakly lit, uh, office room, um, anonymous place. But but she asks him, you know, what's what's the end game here? You know, the, you're you're it in Silicon Valley. Are you gonna you know be acquired by a U.S. company? And he and he says, uh, well, you know, my my hope is actually for for us to remain independent and for us to show to show the world that we can do this from Europe and maybe start acquiring U.S. companies. And that's you know, it's it's a bold statement from a 24 or five year old, however old he was at that point, but. But it really is sort of, I mean, it, it, that's, that is how it played out. Um, and so we don't know if, you know, of course, things could have taken other turns. They had negotiated with Tencent. Um, we've heard talk about discussions with uh, SoftBank. You know, there's, there's, you know, any number of scenarios that, that could have actually uh, played out uh, just as well, I think. But, but in hindsight, when you, when you look back at that kind of material, you kind of have to, to hand it to, to the guy, you know? 
I think that one test that he that he had, uh, according to some sources, is that if if merging with another company would improve the service, then that could be a reason. Uh, you know, and I think that Google was that kind of a company where he felt like this could be a good fit if I'm still uh, in charge of something, but uh, uh, and if I don't just become some little poor part and I get phased out and stuff. So I, I think he never felt confident enough. That uh, that Spotify would improve by being sold uh, to, mm -hmm. to any of these companies that that have uh, negotiated, and I, I guess I mean there's never really been a, uh, a uh, an offer. Uh, it's never gone past the initial phases uh, these these mm -hmm. negotiations that we re report on. Uh, so um, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's easy to see the point that that uh, people that know Daniel well. Uh, you know, have when they say that he never really wanted to sell. But I, I still think that's, uh, you know, it could have happened, but it wasn't, it wasn't really what he wanted in his heart. He wanted to be independent yeah. uh, and he wanted to build something big on his own. Yeah. Well, um, finally, since this is a podcast about books, I asked you both to choose a book to recommend to listeners. What, what did you come up with? Well, I would I would recommend Super Pumped by Mike Isaac, and it's it's of course uh, right in the category. I, I thought it was such a fun read, uh, and and uh, Travis Kalanick just being this tech bro character, uh, it, it's such a comical. You know, he's like a genius, but but he competes with these wild methods, and eventually becomes the enemy of his own company, and they have to force him out. And they compare him to, to sort of an alien intruder, sort of clawing his way into his own company and being thrown out again and again. Um, it's just such a such a crazy, fun story about a company that we all have a that, that we're all sort of that we all service that we all use, uh, and uh, that we all sort of probably have mixed feelings about. Uh, I I, uh, I thought he really. Uh, found a good balance there, and 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 how to describe that with a, with a bit of uh, a bit of fun, but also like some really really excellent journalism uh, going into that book. So, super pumped by Mike Isaac about the about the the Uber story. Thank you. Yes, good choice. Um, I, I've uh, been enjoying um, "Say Nothing" by uh, by Patrick uh, Radden Keefe, who's a, a New Yorker contributor. Um, this is a book about, you know, researched over many years, I imagine, um, about the uh, the troubles and the violence in, in Belfast in the late 60s. And it's really, you know, super colorful nonfiction, colorful, but but accurate, you know, based on tons of archival research and, and interviews. Um, and, and, you know, it, it sort of reads, it, it teaches you, it, it taught me certainly a whole lot about the, the conflict. Um, but it also reads like a like a thriller and almost like a like a true crime uh, story as well. Um, so, so that I've I've really enjoyed that. Great. Well, I've read neither, so thanks for the uh, thanks for the tips. Mm -hmm. um, today, I've been talking to Sven Carlson and Jonas Leonhoverd about their book, The Spotify Play, published in February by Diversion Books. Jonas and Sven, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, Tim. <laughs>